Welcome to Retaining the Passion, Journeys Through Nursing. This is a non-affiliated podcast. Any views expressed by the hosts or guests do not necessarily represent those of the organizations they work for or are studying at, or any trade unions or professional bodies they are members of. Thanks for listening. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode three of our Welcome. second series. Happy Easter. This is out on Easter Sunday. So if you celebrate Easter, happy Easter. If you don't, I hope you've Munch enjoyed lots the of chocolate long, anyway. Yeah, and enjoyed the long bank holiday if you've managed to make the most of it. And if you're working, thank you for working on bank holidays. You're very much appreciated. So, Claire, what is the name of this fortnight's episode? So this episode, we had a, a long struggle with the title of this, but we ended <laughs> we up did. going simple. In fact, we had a long struggle at the beginning of this episode because what people don't know, this is the third time we've recorded this bit because I keep laughing. So, so sorry, Craig. <laughs> um, but this episode, aptly, as a result of that, is called When Mistakes Happen. It is. And this came from, as you know, Claire and I are both curators of the RCN's newly registered Nurses Network. So I was on a couple of weeks ago and when curators are on, they get to basically curate the content that they want. And on that day that I was on, I was talking about mistakes and do universities prepare us for when we make mistakes rather than if we make mistakes. And overwhelmingly, the feedback that I got that day was no, that that wasn't the case, that we weren't prepared for making mistakes we were sort yeah. of taught not to make them that it's the end of the world if you yeah. make a mistake and it leaves you in a very kind of anxiety driven way of entering the profession I think I think Absolutely. I've lost count of the number of times as a student I was told to protect my pin be careful you might lose your pin we were made and I think I've heard this anecdotally from quite a lot of students we didn't have to do it for an assignment, but I think some people did. We we were advised to go and have a look at the cases on the NMC website of fitness to practice and what sort of things people got pulled up in front of the NMC for. So it, when mistakes we, happen, a phone rings. Yeah. <laughs> my, my child. <laughs> I, might, I should probably answer at some point. Yeah. So part of that for us is it's not about if because in any walk of life, no matter what you do, whether you're cooking, DIY, being a parent, a dancer, an actor, a nurse, you make mistakes. So for us, the when was really important rather than the if. Yeah. And there was a big discussion between ourselves about how at universities we're taught to see the nursing and midwifery council as a, a punitive body almost and like a sick to beat us with and your pin was something that you must guard at all costs and that any potential mistake you make will risk losing that yeah like carrying a a fragile egg through life but don't break it and any little thing you can do will crack the you know your your pin is a a fabergé egg but yeah and we also were discussing how because of that and because of that institutionalized way of teaching that new registrants and I suppose to an extent nurses as they go throughout their career can become paralyzed by that fear of making mistakes and losing their pin and actually that can lead to making mistakes or worse concealing mistakes. 
Yeah, definitely. Worse than making mistakes in the first place. Yeah, and being frightened to talk about those things and and then stunting your chance to change and grow. Yeah. Or you keep making the same mistake over and over again because there's a culture of not talking about mistakes. And so we don't know that we're doing something wrong because we all go insular and don't discuss things. So we definitely need to change it from when to if, if to when. This is all about mistakes. I'm I'm demonstrating it well. (laughs) So we are delighted that we got two fabulous guests. The first is Liz Jeremiah, who is a senior ITU staff nurse and an RCN steward. And we got the NMC Chief Executive Officer and Registrar, Andrea Sutcliffe. Enjoy. I'm so excited to be joined by my very good friend, Liz Jeremiah. Liz is a senior ITU nurse and an RCN steward. Hello, Liz. Hi, Hi, Liz. How are you? Fab. So glad to have you on. So today's episode, we're going to get to the main questions. But before we start, we ask all our guests to tell their story, their journey, kind of how you got to where you got to, how you've sort of progressed in your career. And please, you know, be as personal as you want, but don't say anything that you wouldn't want to share with the whole world. No worries, Karen. Thanks for that introduction. That's really nice to hear. So um, I've been nursing for 25 years now, I'm getting a bit long in the tooth. I fell into nursing by accident, really. I left university the first time around without a clue what I wanted to do and I started working as a support worker partly because I needed a job if I'm honest mm-hmm. and absolutely loved it and I used to meet up with one of my old uni friends a couple of times a week for a pint in the pub and tell her all about my working week and she just said to me one day why don't you do your nurse training and it hadn't occurred to me and I suddenly this little light bulb went off and so I did so I applied and I got an interview and I got on the course and I've been doing it ever since um, and it's something I'm very very proud of the fact that I'm still doing 25 years down the line um, right. when I first qualified I worked briefly in haematology and oncology and general medicine and then I um, after about six seven months I went to work in ED where I worked for about 10 years and uh, just under 12 years ago I started working in critical care which is where I'm still now so I imagine that's been a very difficult time for you at the moment it has it's had its challenges I have to say both personally and professionally and an awful lot of people to support including myself and sometimes it's been quite difficult to look after myself I've learned quite a lot of lessons about who I am and what I can and can't do and what I can and can't say no to Um, but also the importance to reinforce the importance of good teamwork and supporting your colleagues because at the end of the day without supported colleagues patient care suffers Exactly. So um, that's the biggest thing I've taken from all of this, really, is just being mindful of, of how we all work together and how we look after each other and ourselves. So I think that's just such a brilliant sentiment. Mm, so definitely. what Claire and I discussed at the very start of the episode is how we can prepare people to make mistakes so that the question becomes rather what to do when you make a mistake rather than if you make a mistake. Uh-huh. So as someone who you described long in the tooth so as an experienced (laughs) nurse and as an RCN steward we're sure that you may have made mistakes yourself and you've supported others when they've made mistakes do you think that mistakes are something that nurses should be fearful of in our roles because sometimes they can have such devastating consequences and what do you think is the reality of mistakes for nurses I think that in any walk of life, this isn't anything that's peculiar to nurses or nursing. 
and it isn't actually peculiar to any kind of employment that every single person will at some point make a mistake whether it's putting coffee straight into the kettle or whether it's giving a patient the wrong drug or not checking a blood group or buying the wrong petrol putting diesel in your car instead of petrol mistakes are absolutely inevitable because people are human beings and I think we should absolutely be looking at when you make a mistake not if and I think it's one of our consultants that I work with actually said not that long ago when we were talking about human factors and errors and things it's actually quite a good thing to be a little bit nervous all the time because if you are a little bit nervous all the time, you're less likely to make mistakes mm. and you're yeah. more likely to scrutinise the reasons why that happened rather than beat yourself up into a pulp over it. Yeah. So I think when we get tired, we'll make mistakes more frequently. When we get stressed, we'll make mistakes more frequently. And I think it's important to evaluate how that happened and why it happened and put things in place to try and reduce the risk of it happening again. I don't think you can ever eliminate all risk because otherwise we wouldn't have risk assessments. We wouldn't do risk assessments if risk was eliminated. Um, Every single thing we do, we should be risk assessing. You know, I sometimes have to risk assess myself when I just get out of bed in the morning. Um, (laughs) If I haven't had a coffee, I'm more likely to be crabby with somebody. If I haven't had enough sleep, I'm more likely to do something daft. And how do I reduce that risk if I'm working the next day, for example, is go to bed at a sensible time. Yeah. And that's a very straightforward thing to do. And if I do go into work and I haven't had as much sleep as I would normally have liked and I'm feeling not as on the ball, I might say to my colleagues, you know, just to let you know, I didn't sleep particularly well last night. So if I'm a little bit crabby or a little bit vague, please bear with me. It's because I'm having to think a little bit extra hard about what I'm doing than I would normally do because I'm mindful of the fact that I'm tired and that could impede my judgment. Mm. And if I tell other people, that's not me saying, allow me to make mistakes. Yeah, That's me saying, be aware of the fact that I am a bit tired. So I'm kind of almost giving them permission to point something out to me and say, Liz, you need to take a break, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, it's a, and it's that balance between complacency and kind of we've described it as sort of being frozen in fear. Yeah. But actually, it's awareness, isn't it? You're describing being aware of yourself and risk assessing dynamically because we always think risk assessments have to be written down. Sometimes it's that dynamic process, isn't well, it? I, I, I kind of think of risk assessment as a little bit like reflection. I mean, we talk about reflection in action and on action and yeah. after action. Or I, I can't believe it was a long you time. You wear shared minds. I was about to say that. It's like well, reflective exactly. action. Yeah. And if, if, I'm, if I'm reflecting on the fact that I haven't slept particularly well and I have a headache, then I'm reflecting on what I am normally like if I haven't slept particularly well and I have a headache. Mm-hmm. And if I think back to other times when I've been like that, what am I more likely to do? I'm more likely to be snappy. I'm more likely to make rash judgments. I'm more likely to make mistakes. So I'm reflecting on it, risk assessing it, and informing other people that this might be the case. Yeah. Not to give me permission to be an ass at work, <laughs> but to just, you know, I don't want people telling us, oh, well, she's just tired. I, I don't want to be an ass. But if I tell people I'm tired, It's not to give me permission. It's just to let them know that if I'm not quite my normal self, it isn't because of anything they've done. Because that's the other thing. Sometimes people think, oh, gosh, I must have upset her. And that's Mm -hmm. not the case. I'm just tired and old and bent. (laughs) (laughs) You know, 
You talk as if you're some wizened old crone. May I just say for anyone, I know you can't see Liz, but she's most definitely not a wizened old I am. I am 50 next year. Well, you had a very easy paper round then. And you just what you said about your consultant, it's been my day off today. So I've been binge watching some old Grey's Anatomy. And it really reminds me of a quote from that that I tweeted today, which is overwhelming doubt is a problem but a little bit of doubt is a sign of an intelligent adult. Absolutely. And I think that's exactly. really... I, th- I think that's a really, really good point to make, that you know we don't want people to be so terrified that they can't do anything, that they analyse absolutely everything, but to be a little bit cautious, to double-check stuff, particularly when you're tired, particularly when you haven't had the chance to take your break yet, particularly if you've got a bit of a headache or you're a bit dehydrated, because let's face it, it, that's a fairly stocked day for most nurses dehydrated need a pee have a headache haven't eaten yet well we've all turned into camels well exactly <laughs> so having that you don't want to be so frightened that you don't want to do anything because mm. our colleagues need us our patients need us cares need to be carried out medications need to be given but to just be that little bit mindful where I work on ITU we don't have drug rounds per se we have our own individual patients or two patients to look after if you feel that you are I mean I've done this plenty of times I've been on and I've been asked another question and another question then three other people have come up to ask me something and I'm thinking actually what I need to do right now is take a break Mm -hmm. because I'm not thinking straight if I say it's a night shift and I know I need to check the CDs and order some CDs, am I going to do that when I'm tired and I'm hungry and I need to pee and I've got a headache? No. Can that wait half an hour for me to have a break? Yes. Yeah. So instead of making myself do something because my brain is telling me I have to do it, which we all do, don't we? I have to do this. And I must do this is to think, actually, do I need to do that right now? Hmm. If I do yeah. it right now, am I likely to make a mistake? Yes. Or am I more likely than not to make a mistake? So can it wait half an hour while I have a quick break? Yes, it absolutely can wait. And not. I think it's really, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you're ward-based, both of you, and that's kind of, you know, that formulaic, not formulaic, but you've got that structure to your day and those tasks that, that can be carried out. And I think, I don't know whether it's mental health nursing per se or community nursing, but our day can be very different and you can plan something in the morning and then I mean I I know that's the same for lots of types of nurses but we could just get a phone call and think it's uh, be talking to a relative and it might be that we give the wrong information out or we think we can talk to that person and we haven't double checked properly the consent to contact and they're quite complicated so you can talk about one thing and not another and so mistakes happen in so many different ways don't they in terms of different roles and and how they fit and when I was sort of thinking back about this podcast, I think your go-to is drug errors. That's the easy one to kind of think about, isn't it? But we all make mistakes and you're right talking about having a headache or being tired and just not being 100% on your game or I've turned up late to appointments because I've gone the wrong way. I've come out of where I'm going and I've driven the wrong way. And so you end up late. That's a bit of a mistake. You don't think about it in the same I've inadvertently just not turned up to work because I didn't think I was working. <laughs> yeah. And then I've had a phone call to say, where are you? And I'm like, I'm at home in the bath. Like, how are you? <laughs> You're supposed to be here. Oh, bugger it. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. So I suppose that's part of why we wanted to talk about this, isn't it? We wanted to yeah. talk about when mistakes happen, not if they happen. Because like you said at the outset, Liz, it's, it is when. 
So yeah. given that, I guess, how can people use when they make mistakes positively and then move forwards, particularly if it has not been a near miss, you know, if it has had an impact on a patient or a team member, how can they use making those mistakes to move forwards in their nursing journey? I would probably, talking from a personal point of view, I would probably argue very strongly that the vast majority of the things that I now do, for example, as a a junior manager, the way in which I work now have been adapted from making mistakes Mm. because I've learned through trial and error, if you like. You could look at a mistake as trial and error, e.g. a relative has phoned up or somebody claiming to be a relative has phoned up. You talk about confidentiality and things like that. So, for example, a fictitious 20-year-old patient, somebody phones up claiming to be a relative. The person answering the phone doesn't ask for the password and relays information to that person believing that they're a relative. And it might actually turn out that the person that it's called is an ex-partner who has a restraining order so yeah it can happen I might then sort of approach that member of staff who subsequently found this out perhaps the patient's mother's phoned up and saying I've just learned that how the hell and that member of staff is devastated yeah so I the first thing I would do would be to tell them that it's okay that would be absolutely the first thing I would tell them that it's okay I'd then sort of say you know let's make some time Um, obviously not leaving anybody at risk, but to try and take that person to one side and perhaps have a cup of coffee or tea with them and say, what happened? And that's the first thing is what actually happened. I need to kind of find out what the facts are, not why did it happen or you did something wrong, but just what happened and be mindful that that person might be in floods of tears, might feel absolutely terrible, terrified. Oh my God, I'm going to be in trouble. I'm going to get the sack. Because as nurses, we catastrophize everything. How many oh, times yeah, have, I think that's... A f- how many times have we had chest pain? Oh, my God, I'm having an MI. And by nature of what we do, we catastrophize stuff. So that person is probably thinking, or quite possibly thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to get the sack. I'm, yeah, I'm, I think yeah, that's I'm everyone's go-to reaction. Particularly, I think, newly registered nurses, because we have it drummed into us at university that... If you make a mistake, it is your pin on the line and you will go to an NMC hearing and... I've heard throughout my career, I've seen people being told by senior managers, you've just put your pin at risk. And it infuriates me because people don't learn by being threatened. People hide when they're threatened. People aren't honest when they're threatened. I think most students that I spoke to at some point in their training were told to go and look at the NMC website to see cases of nurses who were either disciplined or dismissed. Oh, I definitely was. We had had a lesson on it where we had to read up a case study and then it was discussed in our nursing values class about what had happened in the process. Like, so no wonder we get paralysed by that fear because institutionally it's been like yeah, tra- don't lose trained your into us. You, you're taught that, aren't you, from the beginning? This is a personal view. It's got nothing to do with my union role or my clinical role at all. This is just my personal view as a human being. Mm-hmm. I find that absolutely horrifying. Yeah. Claire, you, you have children, I gather. You know, when, when your children do something great... You praise them, you know, they might get pizza tonight or, or you get to go to bed <laughs> half an hour later or whatever. Obviously, I'm, you know, I don't, I'm not a parent. Yeah, yeah. 
No, I'm laughing because that's exactly what my kids would ask for. And, and, An and hour and later to bed and pizza. Perfect. Yeah, exactly. At the same time in bed. Um, <laughs> that, that to me is a great treat. But how easy it can be to say, you know, when your child is having an absolute meltdown and they go, oh, I hate you. How easy it is. Oh, I hate you too. Mm-hmm. And that child will hear that and believe it because they believe everything you say because you're my mum and you love me and you tell me that you love me and I know that you love me because you tell me all the time and you cuddle me and you hold me and you give me pizza and let me stay up an hour late when I've done something good. And therefore, logic dictates when you tell me that you hate me, that's also true. Yeah. And I know that sounds like a strange analogy, but actually if we teach nurses that if you do this, you will do this, you will lose your pin, you will find yourself in front of the NMC, that is going to foster instead of a caring, nurturing, open and honest nurse, that's going to foster somebody who's terrified and yeah. who will hide when they've made a mistake. They won't be honest about it. They won't and they'll cover it up, up and which they will is much worse than actually making Absolutely. the mistake. Absolutely. Because there's no learning. Absolutely. Or they stagnate, don't they? They find the thing that they're good at, that they can do repeatedly and won't do yeah. anything any further. Absolutely. So... And so I've, they don't develop a, or enhance or change. And I've come across those nurses as well that fear absolutely everything. And, and I can't do that. Yeah. I can't do that. And do stagnate and don't progress. And are so terrified to do anything that even things like sort of basic observations are prone to over-analysis. And what if I miss something? I think it's helpful to know what the process is. Absolutely. Yeah. Just the same as when you learn how to drive, you learn how not to drive and you learn what the mm. norm is and what not to do, like break the speeding limit or undertake. Of course, it's important to know what the process is to understand, for example, the disciplinary process or the capability process. It's very important to know that those processes are in place, but to understand that they are also in place to help and support you and protect you. Because if we do everything by fear, then Bob Smith gives five milligrams of a drug instead of five micrograms he's terrified i just won't say anything i'll just hope for the best yeah. or, worse, or worse still try and try and give the antidote or something make it worse yeah and that is so much worse than the actual mistake i think the biggest thing we can teach people for when we make mistake rather than if is how to deal with it honestly Because I think Mm. honesty is always in life, and we are taught it from children, but honesty in life is always the best policy because as soon as you start to try and conceal something or hide it or shift blame or make excuse, then you aren't going to learn. It can overwhelm you as well, and it can destroy you. I mean, I absolutely have made mistakes. I distinctly remember when I'd fairly newly qualified was working a night shift on the ward, the first ward I worked on, and there was a patient I'd given their drugs to every night for the last three or four nights. And I genuinely don't remember which it was, but I started to give them carbamazepine instead of phenytoin or the other way around. I mean, I know, Claire, you said it, it's not just about drug errors, but it's no, the but... I could think of. And as I was giving the lady had a peg, and as I was giving it, my brain went, that's the wrong colour. Carbamazepine is white and phenytoin is pink, and it was the wrong colour. And I started frantically trying to pull it back through the peg. And of course, that didn't work because it was a peg. <laughs> I'd only given half the drug. And I, I absolutely... Your proverbials. ...nearly had an accident. <laughs> absolutely terrified. But not because of the NMC. 
but because I was scared that I'd caused harm to another human being. Yeah. And so you're you're does. scared that you've let your team down, yourself down, the patient down. That's what I certainly found when I yeah. first started. And it's been different because we've both Claire and I have started during a pandemic. Absolutely. But you felt like you've needed to be at a certain level to match the rest of your team because and I, I know quite a lot of us have put that pressure upon ourselves, but there has been, there has been that expectation. So then you do become scared to make mistakes because you know how much you're relied upon. Mm. Yeah, and I can understand that. But, but you know, the, the first thing I did was just immediately stopped what I was doing, stuck a blood pressure cuff on her. I mean, it wouldn't have had effect on her that quickly, but it seemed a sensible thing to do. And I went straight to the, this is back in the Whitley Pay Scales, how long ago it was, went back to the <laughs> E-grade, who was doing her drug round. And I said, I need to talk to you. Well, I just need to. And I said, no, I need to talk to you. Obviously, I wasn't going to say anything in front of other patients because then they'd have been terrified to let me anywhere near them with a drug trolley. And we went to one side and I told her and I was in floods of tears and she was so kind. And that's that's what made the difference. She was so yeah, And she made me a cup of tea. She didn't say go and have a cup of tea. She went and made me a massive cup of tea with about 15 sugars in it. She said, (laughs) just sit here for a minute. You know, I'll finish off your drug round. And I didn't take it as I'll finish off your drug round because you're quite clearly not capable of doing so. She could see that I didn't want to touch the trolley and do the rest of my drug round because I was too upset. Yeah. So she, she was just genuinely trying to help me. And then she came. So when we do make mistakes, I guess the, the, what we're saying is, you know, be honest about it and, yeah. and own it and move forward. But how do people move forwards from that in terms of themselves and going in on the next shift? What could you suggest that they do? I think with the honesty is having a conversation with somebody and explaining Yes, this mistake happened and let's look at how and where and why and what and how we're going to look at it. But we can do that further down the line right now. So I'm that I'm that person. I just need somebody to hear me. I need somebody to validate me for feeling so crap about what's just happened. Yeah. Yeah. I need somebody who understands that I feel crap about this, that I may think about this for several days, weeks or even months down the line. I need to be able to learn from it but maybe not today yeah today I just need somebody to be kind to me and not make me feel any worse than I already do and today you just need to get through the day I just need to get through the rest of the day and I just need you to be kind to me I will tomorrow when I'm day off do some reflection and I will come back to you and we can have another conversation about it but today I actually just need you to be kind to me because nobody can possibly make me feel any worse about what's happened than I do right now. Yeah. And that will allow that person to heal and to think, okay, does this make me a bad person? No, because the fact that I was so upset about it makes it obvious that I'm not a bad person. If I really didn't care, I wouldn't be so upset. So that's evidence in itself that it doesn't make me a bad person. Does this make me a bad nurse? No, it doesn't. Because actually, I've been qualified six months, but I did my training. I have two children at home. I had financial difficulties. I had two other jobs and I did all of those things and I still succeeded in completing my training. Yeah. Despite all of those things that life threw at me. And I've come to work 
as a newly registered nurse in the middle of a pandemic where every single other member of staff from volunteers right up to the chief executive is under extraordinary pressures. Yes, I've made a mistake, but is that a reflection on me as a person, as a nurse and as a professional? No. Yesterday was a bad day. But let me look at all the other things that I have done and have succeeded on and have passed exams and vivas and retaken placements and things. I've done all of those things and I'm still here. Today I made a mistake, but that doesn't make me a mistake. What a great way to look at it. Now, you have given us a plethora of good advice (laughs) throughout this entire interview, Liz. But we do end every interview with just, if you had one piece of advice, now it can be big, small, existential life advice for all our nurse listeners out there and people who might not be nurses, what would your piece of advice be? Focus on everything that you have done, not the minority of things that you haven't. I think it's very easy for us to talk about things we have to do and we must do and we mustn't do and we can't do. I mustn't make a mistake. I can't let my family down. I have to go to work. It's okay to not be okay today or tomorrow or next week. It's also okay to get better. And I think becoming a nurse, whatever your speciality, whichever area you work in, NHS, private sector, mental health, elderly care, care homes, we are all an extraordinary bunch of people who have chosen this noble profession because something inside us has driven us to do that and I'm not going to call it a vocation because it is a profession yeah be proud of that you will make a mistake but you will learn from those mistakes and that will only make you better at your job so don't focus on the things that you've got wrong focus on the abundance of things that you've got right Oh, that's amazing wise words. And if people want more wise words from you, Liz, where can they find you on so I'm, social I'm on media? Twitter. So I'm on Twitter yep. by my name is Jeremiah, but it's at Steward Moggs. Moggs um, with two Gs? It's uh, no, just M O G S. So at S D E W A R D M O G S. So Perfect. to follow uh, for that and other bits of nuggets of information or the occasional cat meme. I was going to say stuff about cats. But, you know, what I'd say to anybody that might be struggling with their new profession and their mental health, I've been there. I've done that. I didn't just buy the wardrobe. I bought the entire fitted bedroom. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And I'm still here. And I've made mistakes. I've made some pretty, pretty decent mistakes in my career, but I'm still here and I'm still a nurse. Well, thank you. And so when much. we're back face to face and lucky in Congress, see Liz, she gives the best hugs. I do, so do you. And I'll buy you a pint. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming oh, on. Oh, thank Liz. you. You're very and welcome. We'll speak soon. Definitely. Well, Claire and I are honoured to be joined by Andrea Sutcliffe, who is Chief Executive Officer and Registrar for the Nursing and Midwifery Council. So thank you for joining us, Andrea. Thanks so much. We're so pleased to have you. I know you well, have an immensely busy schedule, so thank you for taking <laughs> some time out. 
Oh, well, it's absolutely my pleasure and also my honour. Um, so thank you very much for inviting me, Claire and Craig. I'm really glad to be here. Well, how we like to start every interview is just by asking a little bit about your journey through your profession and how you've got to where you are now. So getting to the top of the NMC is quite the journey. So how <laughs> did you get there? <laughs> I know and it's a real privilege to be the Chief Executive and Registrar of the Nursing Midwifery Council. And one of the things when I was thinking about this question, was I can see all aspects of different uh, bits of my career landing up in this job. So, you know, we're here to regulate. That's the job with the regulator. We set standards. We look at uh, individual cases, all of those kind of things. I've been a regulator before. I was the Chief Inspector of Adult Social Care at the Care Quality Commission in England. That was the last job I had before Mm -hmm. the NMC. But I've also set standards. So I was Deputy Chief Executive of, it was called then the National Institute for Clinical Excellence. Um, And I was also at the Social Care Institute for Excellence and we set standards there. So that side of our regulatory role, I've kind of got that. But we also want to do that job in support of the professionals that we're working with and the public. And again, I can bring things from my background into this role. So services at the early stages of my career, I was a general manager for older people services, including mental health care of older people in the community in North London. And then I was also a general manager for children and women's services. So that included maternity. So I've done midwifery as well from that perspective. And I also took on neurosurgery and neurosciences uh, in that role too, which uh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of a job, um, I have to tell you. So I've got some understanding of the environments within which the professionals on our register are working. And I think that's really, really important. But in terms of the perspective on the public as well, well, again, I've been really, really lucky in my career. So when I was at NICE, one of the responsibilities that I had was for patient and public involvement. So working with all of the different patient and public advocacy groups around the decisions that NICE was making, part and parcel of my role there. And when I was at the Social Care Institute for Excellence and the Care Quality Commission, did a tremendous amount of work around co-production. So really moving on from involvement and engagement to actually genuinely working together with people. And again, I think that that stood me in really good stead in terms of coming into this role. But the third bit of our job is about using the insight that we get from the regulation that we do to try and influence things. Mm. So to try and use what we know from the cases that come through for fitness of practice or why people leave the register and all of those sorts of things to influence policy and the environment within which Mm -hmm. uh, nurses and midwives and nursing associates work. And so what I bring to that is that over the last 20 years, I've worked at a national level. So at NICE, I was the Chief Executive of the Appointments Commission, Chief Executive of the Social Care Institute for Excellence, and then at the CQC. So I've worked with government. I've worked with the devolved administrations. Really important. We're a four-country regulator. So making sure that we're working with Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland, as well as England, really, really important. Yeah. 
And also in all of those roles, I've had to be an ambassador for the organisation. So, you know, standing on platforms and talking about what we do and dealing with the media. So that was a big bit of my last job, big bit of the job at NICE as well. So I think all of those things sort of helped me in that perspective. And then, of course, I've got to know how to run an organisation because that's Mm. there's a thousand people that work at the NMC and making sure that that works well. And the fact that actually I started off doing finance. So, you know, that side of things doesn't phase me. I've done business planning in my time. So that stuff I can do. And of course, I've been a chief executive before and governance is really important in that role. And when I was at the Appointments Commission, my role there was around governance for NHS organisations, particularly boards and chairs and non-executive directors. So again, I can bring that in. But the last thing that I would say is what really gets me here. All of that stuff is important, obviously. It's kind of what you put on your CV. Um, (laughs) But what really gets me here is people. And the fact that what's driven me from a tiny tot to here is what can I do to make a difference for people? So when I was a teenager, I was a volunteer in St. John's Ambulance Brigade. I worked in the Gateway Club supporting people with learned disabilities. My very first job in health and social care was when I was a student and I was a cleaner. And I tell you, if you want to find anything out about how places work, do that. Um, (laughs) But what I also found out was, you know, because I had the opportunity to talk to the people who were in the beds and, you know, really getting to know what mattered to them and, you know, what was important. And then there's my family experience as well. I mean, I, I don't know if you know, but I've spoken about this before. My youngest brother was very ill with mental health problems for a goodly proportion of his life and very sadly died from suicide in 2006. And and Adrian sits on my shoulder because I constantly think about what happened with him, what we need to do better as a consequence of that, and how I can bring that personal lived experience, which everybody has. I'm not special in having that. Everybody's got it. But bringing that into the job that I do so that we can make a difference. So, yes, there's all of those kind of you know specific jobs that I've had that I've been really lucky to have. But it's the people that motivate me. And that's what got me here. And thank you for it, being so open with us. I know. It definitely comes across, I think. You're very human. That's how I would always describe you, that you bring that human element. The NMC doesn't feel faceless with you there, which is really nice. No, and I think you can see big changes recently within the NMC since you've come on board. So the NMC is often seen as a punitive organisation. Craig and I have talked about this before, that quite often through our pre-registration training, we're taught about what to do if if we lose our pin. And it's almost put in you as, I think, some fear and there to dish out punishments. Do you think that is an accurate representation of the organisation? And if not, how do you see it? No, I don't think it's an accurate representation. Guess what? (laughs) So, I mean, I'd answer it in three different ways. So the first is we do so much more than fitness to practice. There's an awful lot more to the NMC than investigating the concerns that might get raised with us. 
So we set those standards for proficiencies and for education. Really important in terms of the ambition and the vision that we've got for nursing and midwifery for the future. And you know, I think that that's something that can be such a powerful force for good for nursing and midwifery. And we also quality assure the education programme. So make sure that the people that are coming onto the register have had the proper backing to enable them to do that. And then through maintaining the register and encouraging people through revalidation, we're also trying to make sure that you know, folk are keeping up to date, they're doing that reflective practice. All of those kinds of things are really very important. Then as well, using that insight, as I, I described just a moment ago, to influence things. So, you know, we're not people's employer, we're not people's trade union, we're not the government. So there's lots of things we can't do, but there is a lot that we can do, which can be very positive. But I am very mindful because you are quite right. People get the stories from the lecturers or you know, somebody that they chatted to on their placement or whatever it may be. And so I absolutely understand that fitness to practice looms large <laughs> in, in people's kind of conception of what the NMC is all about. And I think that the problem with all of that is it's a manifestation of the blame culture. It's, you know, if something goes wrong, somebody got it wrong. It's that person that we've got to go after. And the NMC can be used as the sort of like big bad wolf that's going to be coming to get you. And I personally really genuinely do not think that making 725,000 nurses, midwives and nursing associates scared of their regulator is the way to get safe, effective and kind care. No. You know, it's not what's going to happen. It's going to make people defensive. It's going to make people think that they can't speak up. It's going to make people cover up for mistakes. And all of that means we don't learn because everybody makes mistakes. And if we don't recognise that, then we will continue to make those mistakes because we won't learn. And so the third thing that I'd say, and this kind of comes to the point that you were just making about the changes. And I would say one quick thing is it's not just about me and the changes I've brought in since I came into the NMC. Quite a lot of the ideas of what we're taking through now were already there. I just needed to release <laughs> the energy and get people kind of able to do it. And, and they've actually been really keen and really wanted to do it. And only this week, actually, we've been releasing our commitments around looking at context and making sure that when we get a referral, we remember that the vast majority of people who refer to us are normally safe. They haven't got out of bed in the morning to do a bad job or to do something badly. And we should remember that. We should have that in, in our minds. And we also need to make sure that we're looking wider because it could be very easy for an organisation to hang an individual out to dry and for them not to look to themselves or for them not to understand that there might be a systemic issue or a process issue or there might be bullying and harassment going on, or there might be a cultural issue in terms of the way that the group works as you know in their normal environment, and then that manifests itself into an individual problem. And so we need to be thinking more widely. And even if it is an individual's problem, you know, if it is an issue that's about fitness to practice, then we also have to be proportionate. At the end of the day, we want people to practice. So Let's kind of understand 
have you got insight? Yeah, great. If you've got that insight, what have you done to kind of recognize what went wrong, what you need to do to address that? Have you done that? Can we actually kind of, you know, we might have to put some formal process around it. But there are a lot of people who have got things wrong, absolutely genuinely have learned from it and then have moved on and been able to continue. And actually, they're better practitioners because of that experience. Um, So we need to be thinking about that. And we also need to be thinking about if we do identify bigger issues, how do we feed that back to either the service or the organisation or the system as a whole in terms of these are some of the things that you need to fix Mm -hmm. so we don't have these problems coming up? I think that's great. And just chatting about that, so a big part of the conversation Claire and I had at the beginning is about preparing nurses what to do when they make mistakes rather than if they make mistakes. So what support is available from the NMC for nurses who worry about making mistakes and the impact that it might have on their career? And I think that you're absolutely right to say when as opposed to if. Because we all make mistakes. I make mistakes. And and I'm sure the two of you have made mistakes. I mean, you're absolutely lovely and very rare. <laughs> but, you know, it all happens. Um, yep. So there's a few things. I mean, first of all, if you go to the standards, if you look at what we've said in Future Nurse and Future Midwife, one of the things that we're talking about there is about being risk aware, not risk averse. So one of the things that we, it might sound like a funny way to answer the question of what the support is, but I think this is about being proactive about Mm. it rather than reactive all the time and is actually encouraging nurses and midwives and indeed nursing associates to plan ahead, to think about what could go wrong and uh, have that in mind in terms of uh, the things they're doing. So not to stop you doing things, but to understand that things might go wrong. How would you react to it? But I think also what we would encourage individuals to do as well is to think about what's the wraparound support that they have. So if you are newly registered and moving into your first posts, what's the preceptorship programme that your organisation has got for you? And we set out last year some principles around preceptorship, which we absolutely would be expecting organisations to put into place because that first year, scary year. Um, yep. <laughs> particularly when it's during the pandemic. I'm 360 days in. <laughs> you know something? You two said that with so much feeling. <laughs> <laughs> But it is, isn't it? And so making sure that we're putting that wraparound support for people so that they've got the safe space that they need to be able to talk these things through. And and the other thing I'd say as well is the code is your friend. (laughs) It actually is there to help and support you in terms of the things that you've been doing. And I don't know if you've seen them, but towards the end of last year, we did these little animations of the code called um, Caring. They were very popular on uh, RCN, NRN. We retweeted and shared them and talked about them on that that we we both curate but I think they're great they're so accessible well I love you for that um (laughs) (laughs) the kind of feedback we like um obviously but yeah it's I mean they're short they're sharp they just kind of get to the heart of some of those little questions that people have and it gives you the opportunity to have that discussion with somebody else because you you've got that shared experience so using that but you know if it does happen uh, and these things do don't be quiet. 
I think I've had a couple of examples recently of people talking about a mistake that they made years ago and they never did anything about it and it is eating away at Mm. them. So there's a corrosive effect of that. So never underestimate that. Never underestimate what it does for you if actually you keep it to yourself and you don't talk about it and you don't share it with others. And because in that sharing with others, um, so your clinical supervisor, your team or your manager, whoever is the right person, talking that through and thinking about why did it happen? Was it something that you did or was it something that was happening around you? Is it something that you need to go off and do a bit more training on or just to get a bit more confidence about whatever it is you in all likelihood talking it through with somebody else will identify that and one of the most important things I've got in my life in terms of doing the job I do is a coach and and I've actually worked with this woman since um a long time Uh, and one of the things about having that relationship is I know I can I know that the only thing that Sheila is trying to do is to make me be the best chief executive I can be. And so it's a safe environment for me to say, do you know something? I got this really badly wrong. And let me talk it through. Let me think about, you know, let's work through how I can do that better. So that that I think is important. But if the worst comes to the worst and you've made a mistake and actually you've ended up with a referral to the NMC, there's a couple of things I'd say is just remember that actually the vast majority of referrals to us end up with no case to answer. Now, we've we've got to take those referrals seriously because we have a duty to protect the public. And sometimes it may well be a member of the public that has made that referral. Uh, So we're going to go through the process. So I'm sorry about that. And I know that that has an impact. But most cases end up with no case to answer and no sanction. And we want you to be able to practice. So we want you to be able to continue uh, in your role. And for us to be able to do our job in the most supportive way possible, the best thing for the registrant is to engage with us, is to talk to us and to share all of the information that they've got. And the times, I mean, hopefully it doesn't happen as much now as it used to, but the times we go through the whole process and we end up in a hearing. And in the hearing, the person says, oh, but this was happening on that day. I've got, for goodness sakes, if we'd done that before, we might not have ended up here. Got to this point, yeah. So it's really important to engage. And the other thing that we're also very mindful of is there's an emotional toll that is impacted on if you're going through this process. And you may well be supported by your union, um, so the Royal College Nurses or whoever else it may be. But you may also need to have some emotional support. So we launched in 2019, it was. um, We did it on World, World Mental Health Day. Um, of that year, we launched a new service called Careline, which is there as an emotional support for registrants who are going through fitness to practice, because we absolutely recognise that it does take its toll 
you may not want to talk to the person who's dealing with your case Mm. (laughs) around how it's making you feel. But we wanted to make sure that that service was available. So we ran it as a pilot to start off with. And after a year, we've confirmed that we're going to continue to do that. What an incredible incentive. That's great. And what's been really interesting about it, I mean, I forget because I don't have the figures in front of me, but one of the things that the care line people have said to us is the number of calls that are happening out of what you might call typical office hours. So, you know, because it's, it's available all the time and clearly, you know, folk, they've gone through the day, they've got home, they've opened up their emails and actually they can call somebody up at a time when, you know, in other circumstances, they might not have access to someone. That's really good. That's really good. And just, I suppose, there's so many aspects, aren't there, to the NMC, and you've touched on quite a few of them, but I think revalidation is becoming such a key part of the role of the NMC and, and the journey of nurses and nursing associates. How important is that reflective aspect of revalidation? And why do you think the reflective aspects required? I think it's absolutely vital and it gives people the opportunity to really deeply think about what they're doing and in going through that thought process and also discussing it with somebody else means that you can identify the good things that you've done and the positive things and the things that you want to keep a hold of and that you want to continue doing But it can also help you to identify some of those things where actually look at it slightly differently. You look at it with the benefit of hindsight, always 2020, as we know. Is there something that you would have done differently that you could do differently in the future? And I think that reflective practice makes us all, whatever job we are, whether we're the chief executive of the Nursing Midwifery Council or whether we're a newly registered nurse, it makes us all better practitioners. Yeah. Totally. I think that's the biggest thing, selfishly, that I get from talking to Craig and our guests on the podcast is we get to reflect with so many different people and reflect on so many different conversations. I definitely think it makes me a better practitioner. Oh, absolutely. That was one of the biggest reasons that we started this podcast Mm. was that we wanted to help the nursing community to reflect on issues that they might not consider and on wider societal issues. And Mm -hmm. selfishly for me and Claire, it's helped us both really reflect on our practice. Now, lastly, before we let you go, Andrea, (laughs) we like to ask all our guests. Now, you've covered so much, but what would your piece of advice be for any nurse midwife or nursing associate? It can be big or small, existential as you like. (laughs) What, What is your pearls of wisdom? Oh, my goodness. No pressure there then. So speaking as somebody that's not a nurse midwife or nursing associate, but loving the role that I currently have, I think the the one piece of advice, absolutely be proud of what you are, who you are and what you do, because what you are, who you are and what you do makes such a difference to people's lives. And we've seen that writ so large over the last year. Um, in terms of the impact. A very dear friend of mine, her husband was in intensive care with COVID for several weeks. Bev couldn't be there, but the nurses were. And it meant so much to her and it meant so much to me. And that's just one tiny example. There are so many more. So my big advice is be proud. 
That's lovely. Excellent. And if people want to follow you on social media, Andrea, where can they find you on Twitter? They can find me on Twitter with my weirdly named handle, which is at CrouchNTiger number seven. Um, which I've always wanted to ask you, why is that your Twitter handle? So it's a good question. So <laughs> the, reason, the reason is when I first joined Twitter 2011, I was the chief executive of the Appointments Commission. And we'd all you know, we were getting abolished as the bonfire of the crown goes at that time. So I kind of thought, you know, if I was going all public in my role, <laughs> people might think I was either trying to undermine government policy or trying to campaign for us to not be abolished and all. So so I lurked for you know, a, a, a few months. So as a consequence. I created a personal name rather than a professional name. And my personal name is, I I live in Crouch End, so that's Crouch End. And it is a homage to Ang Lee, the director, who did Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. So Crouch End Tiger. And somebody, goodness only knows how, already had Crouch End Tiger number one. And I certainly wasn't going to be number two. So... um, (laughs) So I went for my favourite number, which is number seven. What I a brilliant that. story. I've and always it, wondered if it was Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, but I've never never had the guts to ask you, so that's really good. <laughs> and if people want to follow the NMC on Twitter, they're at NMC News, aren't they? That's right, yeah. So thank you so much for thank joining you. us today, Andrea. We're absolutely delighted to have had you. Well, it's been my absolute pleasure to be with you. You are fabulous interviewers. Um, <laughs> it's also easy. So thank you both very much. And if you could ever have another subject that you want to uh, cover in the future and you want the NMC featured again, I'd be happy to come back and chat to you again. Oh, we will hold, hold you, to, hold that. you to that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it was so great to have both of them on today and they both gave such an insightful opinion, don't you think? Uh, they were really interesting to talk to and came from sort of different angles, but it was so interesting to hear their views and so useful to reflect on mistakes with both of them. I think yeah. it was really insightful. It made me think a lot about my own practice oh, absolutely. And, and about how I'll talk to new registrants in particular and how... I will own my own mistakes. That's my take-home thing. Yes, absolutely. So if we go through them individually, firstly with Liz, I thought the really interesting point she made was that mistakes are absolutely inevitable because people are human beings and human beings make mistakes, which is similar to what you said and we evidenced at the beginning of this podcast. Yep. And I think I really liked the fact that she mentioned things like today, I'm just feeling a bit tired and I might need another coffee. And we know that about ourselves. Most people are quite reflective and they know they've had a bad day or they've slept badly or they've got a flat tire on the way to work. All those different things impact them. But sometimes I think we forget that our colleagues have those things as well and our patients too. So I don't work in a hospital, but I know that when I arrive at an appointment, I'm quite often stressed because I've been driving around trying to find parking. And we forget that we bring all of those things that, like you say, is why we're human and they impact on us day to day. And we need to remember that about each other, I think. Absolutely. And I think that's what came across when she was talking about the importance of evaluating why mistakes happen. So she gave examples of like tiredness and stress and, and how we can systematically put things in place to stop that happening. 
Yes, definitely. And it was really interesting when she was talking about her consultant, like the human factors. And I loved that quote that it's actually a good thing to be a little bit nervous all of the time, because if you're a little bit nervous, you're less likely to make mistakes. I guess that goes back to your previous life in acting. Yeah. They say that in acting, don't they? The minute you stop getting nervous is when you start putting poor performances on on the stage. Oh, no, absolutely. I I suppose it's that adrenaline side of it. I think it's about complacency. It's maybe not the nervousness for me as much as when you do things automatically. You don't drive, but drivers will know that when you do the same route over and over again and there becomes a day where you get home and you have forgotten the drive home, you can't remember that particular journey of that particular day. It's actually quite scary. You think, oh, I've driven that route and not remembered getting home. And I think the same thing about work. It's about doing it consciously and not becoming complacent that you know things because that will inevitably lead to mistakes. Exactly. And what I particularly loved was her talking about the importance of teamwork and being open with her colleagues. So the example Les gave was feeling tired and she openly admitted that it didn't give her carte blanche to make mistakes. But if she makes the team aware that she might need extra help that day or the team might need to be more patient with her or point things out that she might not be aware of. And I think we can be scared to do that, particularly as new registrants. We talked about that paralysis of fear at the beginning. There's so much pressure and expectation on us that quite often we wouldn't open up to our team or our colleagues or our managers to say that we are a little bit off that day. Yeah. And don't you think some of it, I mean, everything comes back to safe staffing when we're talking about these things, but yeah. The fact that we maybe don't have a static team. I mean, people will always leave and they'll always move on and develop. Things happen in their life, they move away. But actually, we're in a position now where we have gaps in our staffing. We are pulling people in from different services to make up staffing shortfalls. And so you haven't got that same team dynamic. And those are really important because then you start to recognize in other people. I know that there's one of the nurses on my team and she's terrible for getting to eat her lunch, but then she gets to the point where if she hasn't eaten, she's going to be ill. And we can all look out for her because we know that about her. But if somebody came in to fill... So for me, mistakes are... They're so complex, aren't they? Yeah. Well, they always talk about that Swiss cheese effect. It just takes all the holes to line up and then that's when the mistakes happen. Yeah. And when the mistakes have more far reaching effects, I suppose, because one mistake may be caught by somebody else and all those things. But it is about lots of different things coming together in a perfect storm. And so interestingly, you talk about mistakes with people and they may have internalized something that they've done and kept it in and blamed themselves and really torn themselves up about it when you sit down and examine mistakes in any walk of life they're very rarely one person doing one thing that has caused a problem to result in it it's like you say it's about that lining up so I think one of the things that I really liked is don't internalize the mistakes because that's a huge problem and we should talk about mistakes because everybody makes them and they shouldn't be something that we can't admit to because we won't learn and move forwards. Yeah. And what I particularly took away from what Liz said was how that 
as nurses, we're reflective and reflexive practitioners. So yeah. by reflecting in action, that can actually help us be a preventative measure. And that makes us more self-aware individuals and practitioners. And I liked how she described it as a form of mindfulness. Yeah, definitely. And actually, I think, I don't know whether this is the same for you or other nurses, I think that the language of mistakes as I went through my degree, my pre-registration training, was mistakes lead to catastrophe. Yeah. And actually, hearing from both our guests, I think, has made me think about that and think mistakes don't always lead to catastrophe. In fact, they more often than not don't. Yeah. And we need to think about those mistakes we make that could have resulted in something else, that if we don't change, it won't improve, that maybe are something that we could be better at. And that's why those things that we term near misses and various things in risk are important to reflect on. Just because it didn't end in catastrophe doesn't mean there isn't some way we can improve. And by focusing on our own mistakes, we can reflect and become better in our own practice. Yeah, and she was absolutely right in highlighting just how devastating it can be to make mistakes and the emotional impact making mistakes have on members of staff. Because no one or very rarely will anyone set out to actively make a mistake. And the fact that she reinforced that it's okay to make mistakes and that's how we learn. And that the important thing is actually finding out the facts of what happened and not why it happened and not pinning individual blame. I just thought that was a really great stance on it all. Yeah, I think mistakes in their definition are not done on purpose is something that's happened incorrectly or inaccurately or because you've thought the wrong thing. I I can't actually think of what the definition of mistake is, but people who are actively going out to do damage, that's a whole different thing and not at all what we're talking about. So mistakes can happen because you misguidedly think that working seven shifts in a row to help out on a short-staffed team is the right thing to do then you might make mistakes because you're exhausted and so but nobody's doing that with the intention of harm um so I think you're right it's really important to look out for each other I mean we say that all the time but yeah it goes for that as well and then I think when we were discussing the punitive stance of the NMC and how we were taught just how shocked Liz was about that Mm. and that fear of putting your pin at risk because I do think that's a lot to do with how we're educated but also about how management deal with the fallout of mistakes and how that can really shape the journey of a nurse because their confidence it can either crumble or they can come out stronger learning from their mistake. Yeah, I forget where specifically I heard the protect your pin, protect your pin, because I think I heard it everywhere. So I wouldn't say it was this particular lecturer or it was this particular placement area. It was just an ongoing narrative about that's why you do things. Yes, we talked about holistic care and care of an individual. I don't want anybody to walk away thinking that the training didn't focus on that. Yeah. But underlying some of that was that, oh, and just be careful because if you don't do this, you might lose your pin. Yeah, because 
if we are educated in that way about protecting our pen and the threat of reprimand, like Liz so rightly pointed out, we don't develop caring, compassionate nurses. And instead, we develop nurses who are terrified and they're potentially defensive practitioners who will conceal mistakes and not learn. And like you said, who will then perhaps focus on what they they do well and not develop on areas where they need to develop on, which will stunt their growth. Yeah. And there's a very big difference between being terrified of losing your pin and being proud of it. You know, I am incredibly proud that our profession comes with a professional registration that is our pin number. I take huge pride in the fact that it means that I adhere to the code and the standards and the principles of the code. Having had a career where it wasn't a profession and there wasn't that professional kind of standards, I take huge pride in it. But I have to be careful, as does everybody, that that doesn't, like you say, tip over into this paralysis of being terrified of losing it because it's a stick to beat me with. It should be this absolutely beautiful thing that we take pride in. Yeah. And I think she was absolutely right on another point. And I know we all have different learning styles. But I would hazard a guess that many of us do not learn best when we feel threatened. So we hide and aren't honest if we make mistakes and we're we're then threatened. Because honesty is the most important thing, not only in nursing, but in life. And we're not going to learn from mistakes if we are threatened. And I think my real takeaway from her was the fact we need people in our teams and our management to be kind to us when we make mistakes because no one can make us feel worse than we do than ourselves about yeah, making definitely. the mistakes. Definitely. And the last quote that I would say from Liz just before we move on to talking about Andrea is, today I made a mistake, but it doesn't make me a mistake. And I just yeah. thought that was so beautiful. Yeah, I think that's a really good thing to sort of take away. Yeah. So then we got the CEO of the NMC, which was an incredibly exciting scoop. So we can see that she has clearly massed so much executive, regulatory, governance and policy setting experience. But she really honestly, I don't know about you, but to me seems to hold people at the heart of everything she does. And it seems to be like that's her sole motivation, which I find is the head of our regulatory body, so comforting and reassuring. And also, I just thought her really openly discussing the story of her brother, Adrian, was was so touching and so humanising. I feel so privileged that she discussed that with us. I mean, she's somebody who I feel very connected to as the nurse. And I think that's probably quite rare and quite unique in a regulatory body, you know, head of a regulatory body. And she, no, I absolutely agree. If I had to think of one word to describe her, and it's hard to describe one, it would be human. And yeah. I think that to do that in a governance and regulatory role, because make no mistake about it, that is the large percentage of her role, is incredible. And she is human. And the fact that she made time for us and she does make time for things, anybody that follows her on Twitter, and if you don't, you absolutely should, whether you're a nurse or not. She is human. She blends her personal life with her professional life. And you can just see clearly shining through that she wants the best for nurses 
and she wants the best for the public. And somehow she seems to be able to dance that fine line without becoming a big stick because she could have a role where her role was just to beat people with a stick and say no and and she doesn't do that so yeah. uh, she was an amazing person to interview and it was lovely yeah. that she and, gave us her time and what I thought just following off the back of what you said the term she used was the NMC could be seen as the big bad wolf but I loved that she was discussing that it was a manifestation of the blame culture and that sometimes individuals are hung out to dry and the NMC is used as the tool to do that when there actually might be wider systemic or cultural issues within the workforce that have led to these errors. Because she said herself, the vast majority of people that they get referred to them are normally safe. They haven't got out of bed that day with the intention of making a mistake or harming someone. Yeah, exactly. And I think... I did take comfort that if ever I find myself in that position, that the NMC as an organisation are not there to target me as an individual and hang me out to dry. That actually is about how is this process led to it? She was very aware of the pressures that people are under. And that's good that our regulatory body understands that. And certainly for me, since she took over, I have seen a big change in Mm -hmm. the culture of the NMC, just the messaging. So some of the stuff that they're putting out about the code. And if you haven't gone and watched the animations, then they're really good and really accessible. And they bring the code to life. We've studied it. I've sort of used it in assignments and we talk about it and we know it's there. But actually, I found last year when they were putting out those animations to do with aspects of the code, they just were a really good refresher and a way to reflect on how that mattered to me and how it then translated to the public. Yeah, um, because she made that really good point that she's there to serve the seven hundred and fifty thousand, was it? Um, yeah. registrants, but also the public as well, and that's really important to remember that. Yeah, and the fact that she even used the simplest of terms as the code is your friend. Yeah, and when we were asking her when mistakes happen, what we can do, I like the fact that she was talking about being proactive, so being risk aware, not risk averse. So that's yeah. something that I'm personally very aware of going into my new role. Like I start a new job in two weeks' time, so it's a very different role. I'm working with a, a high-risk, very different clientele. So that is something that I'm really going to think of and take forward into that new role. Yeah, yeah. It is so important. And you know, both Liz and Andrea just gave me confidence as somebody new to the profession that there are lots of people who I can go and talk to. Because yeah. we mentioned a moment ago about honesty and how it's important to discuss these things, but we can't ever forget that that's hard sometimes. Yeah. And actually, it's hard enough to admit that you've made a mistake or you're feeling anxious about something to your peers and your friends, you know, I might talk to you or or to other people, but it's even harder if actually the people you're going to go and speak to are senior or are people mm. who you think would judge you. And what I got from both of them is a very non-judgmental approach, yeah. not an acceptance that go off, do whatever you like and be a bit cavalier. Absolutely not that, but that be reflective, be present, be mindful, think about the bigger picture and talk to people. And that was such a nice thing to hear from people who have had careers for as long as they have. So I think that I said at the beginning, I think owning my mistakes is something that I 
I'm going to do going forwards because we purposefully haven't spoken on this episode about specific mistakes. We did discuss whether we'd do that and give examples of when we had, but we both feel that that would be really hard to do without breaching confidentiality. Well, yeah, no, because we, we both have made mistakes, but Absolutely. we've used them and learned from them. And it would be ridiculous to assume becoming new registrants within a global pandemic or at any time that we wouldn't have made mistakes. Mm. But what Mm. I really took from Andrea and from Liz is don't be quiet, because if you are, these mistakes can stay with you forever and have a real corrosive effect on you, both professionally and personally. And they can potentially be emotionally and psychologically damaging. So I love the fact that the NMC have put Caroline into place to provide emotional support and that our regulatory body have got that recognition that the emotional impact that those undergoing fitness to practice might experience. I just think that's such a great initiative and so forward thinking and compassionate as a regulator. Yeah, definitely. And that's what it's about, isn't it? It's about talking. And that's what I mean about her being human and the organisation becoming human is that she recognises that the time that people might want to speak is nine o'clock after they've put their kids to bed and come home from work and not two o'clock in the afternoon when it's convenient for a caseworker to make an appointment. So I did take great comfort. And she was very clear that there's still changes that she wants to make and that things aren't perfect. And that just ties into the same thing that we're not done. We're never done. There's always improvements to be made and the NMC will make mistakes the same as we do. But I really felt she got where we were coming from and why we called the episode when and not if yeah Um, because I was a bit nervous we did just email her with this is the title of the episode and (laughs) this is what we're doing and was it like emailing this to our regulator maybe uh, she won't agree and she will be thinking it should still be if so the fact that she was totally on board and like no absolutely it should be when was kind of really good and she will regret the day that she said we can invite her back on whenever she wants yeah every episode (laughs) yeah no and just very very lastly we were talking to her about revalidation and what I thought she said that was so important is to look at what you're doing well alongside what you're not doing well Because I think we can often, I know I do, often overthink what you're doing wrong or are not good at and we fail to see what we are good at. Definitely. Maybe we need to have an episode on that. Maybe. Talking about things we do well and just focus on that. Because you're right, we tend to reflect on things that that haven't gone well. I certainly know the reflective pieces I've done for my revalidation so far have been on editors. And I've done, I'm not saying I'm exceptional, but I have delivered good practice to people, but I've not written any reflective accounts on that. The reflective accounts I've written have been when I've got something wrong. So so there's your challenge. There is a challenge. And I think what we'll just leave you with, guys, and I think Claire and I both echo the sentiment that Andrea said, is absolutely be proud of who you are, what you are, and what you do and happy easter to all of those that celebrate and eat lots of chocolate to those that don't take care see you next time thanks for listening to make sure you stay up to date with our latest podcast subscribe to retain the passion on your usual podcast provider you can follow us on all the social media channels at pod rtp on twitter facebook.com forward slash pod rtp or see our website, www.podrtp.com, for all our episodes. 
You can follow Craig at CraigDavidson85 on Twitter or me, Claire, at Manners of Markle. See you next time. All music from this podcast was courtesy of Kevin McLeod.